Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Payments Podium. I'm the Payments Professor, and today I have a special guest. It's Andrew Gomez from Lippus Advisors. Now, Andrew has been with Lippus Advisors for a few years now, and he previously led the company's research on global payments, on covering real-time gross settlement systems, on low-value bulk systems, and low-value real-time payments. He's done really a lot when it comes to working with the world of faster payments. He's my go-to guy when I want to know what's happening out there in the world of faster payments. He's done things such as custom consulting projects when it comes to entering the market, on developing the products, even on the strategy that you need to have in place. And that's one of the things that you hear from me in a lot of the shows and a lot of videos is, what's your strategy? What do you really want to achieve? Andrew has mostly worked on projects, though, that deal with the Nordics, the Baltics, SEPA region, and North America. Now, today on the show, he's going to be talking to us a little bit about real-time payments and also on open banking. Well, Andrew, I do want to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Kevin. And the topic is real-time payments and open banking. Now, one of the things we'd like to do on the podcast is give people a little bit of history of where did these things come from? Can you know maybe give us the, the Cliff Notes version of real-time payments and open banking? Yeah, sure. So um, I think with open banking, it's actually a really a big break from, from everything that's happened before. So in the past, banking information was really siloed. Uh, processes were disjointed, and this led, led to a lot of unnecessary repetition of processes, right? So think about when you're, as a consumer, when, you're, uh, when you open up a bank account, you have to do things like KYC processes. But then if you go to another bank to get, say, um, a loan for your car or maybe a mortgage or maybe a personal loan, you have to then re- you have to duplicate these processes that you already did at other banks. Well, the whole thing with open banking is to break down these silos and make it more efficient and allow banks to transfer information to each other in order to speed up processes and, and allow for uh, the innovation of new products and services. Um, if you look at the world of, of say faster payments, right um, in some form of another um, real time payments have been really around since Zengen system was released in Japan. Um, while that system doesn't really meet today's modern definition of, you know, 24-7, 365 real-time posting, um, it, it was around. And the, the first you know, modern system came out with faster payments in the UK back in um, 2000, 2008, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since that, you know, since, since that happened, um, you've seen a lot of countries around the world, um, ranging from, say, Sri Lanka to South Africa, uh, recently, you know, the U.S. and Australia, and of course, um, SEPA uh, in Europe, um, you know, now building these their own systems as well. And what we're starting to see now is is banks and software providers really looking at how to combine these two massive uh, recent developments, right? So combining open banking concepts with with real time payments, and I think that's actually where you. I mean, this shouldn't be news to anyone. Anyone who who reads um, the literature on, on, on banking, I'm sure has heard many people talk about how these two concepts can be combined to create um, really interesting new services and products. 
Well, you know what's interesting too is in the U.S. And you talk about reading headlines and things like that. And here in the U.S., the headlines are faster payments. What is it? What's coming? What to expect? Whereas you just mentioned a lot of the countries you dealt with and that you work with, and I, and you know, let's let people know too that you live abroad as well. It's not brand new to them. It's something that's already established, something that they've already had in place for a while. So the open banking. In some cases here in the U.S., it, I really do think it is brand new news to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on the street, if you were to ask people, you know, what do they think about open banking? I, I doubt any more than maybe one or two percent would really have an idea about what, what they mean. Um, but well, I think, how do you define it? How do you define open banking? So from a consumer perspective, I would say open banking is, is simply the ability to take my information and um, give it to any party that I want to have access to my information, regardless of, of where they are. So whether it's uh, a, a bank that I don't actually have an account with, you know, getting information to my bank at, at my current bank, or maybe it's, um, it's a third-party provider getting access to, say, my account in order to offer me, um, you know, maybe a credit card or payment services or, or loans or anything like that. Um, and then I think from a, a business perspective, open banking is, is very similar, but it adds additional maybe thought to about uh, uh, making processes at the, at the corporate level much more quickly. So for example, imagine a, a big business with um, you know, many different bank accounts, some in different countries and in different currencies, imagine the, the platform that they can go on in order to easily manage from a treasury perspective, all of those accounts, right? So they, they get all the information in one, in one location rather than having to have uh, you know several different browsers open or you know tabs open to consolidate that information so the concepts are similar but i think the use cases are very very different whereas you know individuals don't have or don't necessarily have the same type of need to uh, you know link 20 different bank accounts right there aren't many people with 20 different bank accounts but you know big multinational corporations will have a lot more than that and some people, too, um, would say, so is that like APIs? Like when you mention it at a personal level, I know that there are some finance apps that are out there. Um, I've used a couple even that allow you to be able to go in and you are able to link your different bank accounts together to have the, the whole picture. Is, is that basically what it is? Yeah. So, I mean, a APIs aren't new, right? I mean, we've, we've, we've all seen APIs when we say look at price comparison websites for flights, for example, and those have been around for a long time. But, you know, in the past, banks felt that they owned the, uh, the customer data, right? I mean, you'd even sign uh, 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 the form when, when you're signing up for your bank for online banking that you're not allowed to share your, your information with another provider that they can't access. That's your, your information. Well, open banking is taking away that, that, uh, that right of the banks to say, hold on and protect that consumer information. It's, it's freeing up the, the end user to share that data when they want to. Obviously, you know, uh, authorization is key there. Um, but yeah, so APIs are obviously key to that, but APIs aren't, aren't necessarily the only way this is done. It's just probably slowly becoming the industry standard in terms of security.
in which in which that data is accessed. But you know, there's there are other methods, you know, such as screen scraping, which have been used in the past. Well, what's actually, screen scraping? So screen scraping is where um, let's say you go online to make a purchase, and um, you know, there's a, a new company that offers a payment service between the 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 purchaser and and the merchant. And screen scraping is where the, the consumer would go in and type in their information to this, this third-party provider. And then that provider then logs into the user's bank for them using their credentials and initiates the payment on their behalf. And that's called screen scraping because the, the third-party provider is essentially pretending to be that user. And technically, that goes against the service agreements that users, users sign. Um, it's, you know, from a security perspective, it's obviously, it, it can be a bit dangerous. Um, also from a consumer perspective, you, you're never really sure, are they holding on to that information? Are they then accessing that, that, that using that data later on to, you know, get additional information, say your transaction history. Um, but it is something that has been done. And I, I still believe that under the payment services directive, uh, to the revised payment services directive in the in the EU, that that is still going to be allowed as a fallback option if the uh, the bank APIs don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I only I only bring it up to to point out that APIs aren't the only way that open open banking processes can be put into place. There's still other ways to do it. Well, you know, another key word you hit on there is security, and. Uh, I know, I mean, you are an American. I I did mention you live abroad, but I want people to know that you are an American and you grew up in America, but you are living abroad. So you've seen it all around and you know, Americans, it seems to me, we just tend to be more worried about the security. Uh, We're more concerned about how's our data going to be used, that it's going to be misused, that, you know, where's it going to be stored, especially when you hear about all these data breaches. Is that true? Is that or are the same concerns out there in other countries? I mean, for, for sure. I mean, I think um, obviously for for hackers, the U.S. tends to be um, a little bit more of a lucrative market just because it's so much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say, actually, when from an international perspective, like look, say looking at Western countries. I'd actually say Americans are probably a little bit less uh, paranoid about data privacy than say other countries. Um, and part of that is just um, due to history, right? So um, the experience that the Germans had with, uh, after the Weimar Republic fell in the, in the early thirties, um, you know, with, with the, the, the Nazis, you know, um, gathering information on, on let's say uh, undesired, undesired minorities, um, you know, they, they did it there. And then in East Germany, the, the Stasi, the secret police also, you know, implemented like spies everywhere to collect information on, on their neighbors. Um, so Germans are really, really uh, sensitive when it comes to privacy concerns. Um, and I think if you look at, say, GDPR in, in the EU, it also just kind of uh, solidifies this idea that Europeans are... are are really sensitive when it comes to privacy. You know, um, you know, the EU now has this right to be forgotten, right, from the internet that you can't, uh, you know, say 20 years later, you know, Google someone and, and find out that, you know, when, when this person was 18, uh, they went to a bar and they got drunk and they took photos and then they posted it on social media. 
um, you know, so individuals have the right to have their past deleted um, after a certain amount of time. And it's hard for me to imagine something like that um, showing up in the U.S. Um, well, I wonder, too, is it really truly possible to completely delete something from the Internet once it's out there? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I'm guessing the answer is probably you'll never be able to guarantee it. But you, you, from a consumer perspective, you will be able to sue someone who's accessing data that um, you have the right to no longer be accessible. Um, that's the big concern. And I think that's the big concern. Um, now, of course, uh, you also have strong uh, customer authentication. Uh, which is supposed to go live in uh, mid-September, although there are already discussions now that they're going to uh, delay that by up to maybe 18 months. And that has to do with, you know, going back to the open banking and real-time payments, say um, a consumer goes online and buys, I don't know, uh, a sweatshirt from, from Amazon. Um, if that purchase is over 30 euros, um, when they make that purchase, they have to have two... Uh, factors in order to um, confirm who they are. And the factors can be in um, three categories. It can be something you know, such as a password, um, something you are, such as biometrics. So think of, you know, your thumbprint on your mobile phone or something you have, such as your mobile phone. And so um, merchants are having to implement these systems in order to verify the, or so that consumers can prove that they are who they say they are in order to uh, limit fraud. And that goes again to to the whole privacy element. Um, there's there's a an ongoing debate now whether uh, merchants are going to be able to implement these systems by September. And I have to say, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. I, I really would be surprised if if the deadline, if the mid September deadline isn't extended. But it, it goes back to uh, a, a privacy, you know. So what happens if your email gets hacked, you know, or if your bank account gets hacked? Um, how can we how can we protect uh, consumer information? And that's what this two-factor authentication is for. So if your email is hacked or your, your, your account is hacked, just knowing that password isn't enough. You also have to have the, you know, the cell phone or the thumbprint or you know, possibly facial recognition in the future. And so um, the EU is really taking seriously um, uh, security. Um, and I think part of that is also just, you know, People read the news and they see all the hacks going on, whether it's, uh, um, you know, cryptocurrencies accounts being hacked and people losing lots of money, or you hear about these um, authorized push payment fraud in the UK has been a, a major topic, right? So people going online pretending to be, um, you know, the, 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 the phone company or something and sending requests for payments to people or telling them, oh yeah, you need to send the money to this account. And the people send it over and then they find out, wow, that, that account was fake. And, you know, so security is, is definitely a big topic, a big topic in Europe. Um, and I, I think in some cases, probably even more so than in the U.S. Wow. Now, here's the big question. How does open banking and real-time payments really tie together? I mean, where are the advantages of the two together? So I think... Um, you know, I'll, I'll use a very personal example um, with with the bank that I have. I, I'm, I'm using a, a, a digital bank um, from Germany, and so they have a nice little platform where I can go online. I go into the app. 
I can put down, say, you know, I want uh, 2,000 euros for, for uh, a vacation. And, you know, so what they do is I, I, I click a little box that says I give them the right to share my transaction history for the last, I think, six months um, to various other banks who are willing to crunch that data and then offer me a loan. And then within a few minutes, I get, I think, up to four or five different offers for, for a loan. You know, I can put down how much money I'm willing to pay back per month, the amount of time uh, that I want to pay off the loan. And, you know, different banks will then use my bank's uh, web application as a platform to offer someone who's not their consumer to offer me a new product and service, right? So it's open banking because my bank is taking my data, transmitting it via API to other banks who then use that, that connection and, and they use you know, machine learning and algorithms to crunch my data, decide my, what, what my risk profile is, and then they, they make an offer to me within two, I think, it's, I think it's around two or three minutes, but I'll say five to be sure. Um, and then I, as a consumer, have the ability to choose which of those offers I want to take. And then when I hit accept, a real-time payment is initiated and my bank automatically credits my account with, you know, let's say the 2,000 euros for, for my vacation. I can then make that, use those funds, you know, to say buy my flight or book a hotel. And I can do that 24-7, 365. I've actually played with it because sometimes, you know, it's Friday night and I don't have anything to do. <laughs> I can relate all too well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes you're, 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 it's, it's a Friday night and uh, you're in an airport and uh, your flight's been delayed. So you have 45 minutes now to kill. And so you, you start playing with open banking applications. Um, so yeah. And, 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 you know, it's really great. I can do it on a Friday night after the banks are closed, you know, uh -huh. theoretically and after, after settlement systems are definitely closed. And yet I can, uh, I can get that, that money and I can, you know, book, book, a, a hotel or whatever. Now I've, I've never actually done the payout. Um, I was always just doing it for testing, but right. know, it's in the app that it's the money's in my account within a, within a couple minutes. Well, you know, and here's the thing is I think that's awesome. In fact, I, that use case example you just gave to me can be go in so many different ways. And it's one of those things that I'm willing to share my data because it's a win, 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 win. It's a win for the financial institutions that are involved. It's a win for me. And it's a win for the businesses that I'm going to be shopping at as well, because all of that is able to take place so seamlessly and so easily. And if you have some people that, you know, aren't good at making quick decisions and need all the data, well, all the data can be done in just a matter of seconds. And that's what's so fabulous about it. And you also hit on a key part. It's after hours as well. So uh, I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, you know, being, being a millennial, for me, convenience is really important. Um, someone like my dad, you know, is going gonna, is gonna to want to go to a bank branch. He's going to want to, you know, meet someone and talk to them and, and, and have them personally answer any questions he might have. Um, for me, I think I, I would really differentiate uh, on the type of loan I'm, I'm looking at, right? So... If I'm making, if I'm getting a big loan to say buy a car or buy an apartment, uh, 
that's definitely something I wouldn't do on a mobile app on a Friday night or a Saturday morning, you know, at my right. from my couch. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a much bigger decision. But for for small short term loans, you know, maybe I need to buy a new couch or I want to take a vacation. You know, I I found a really great deal online and I don't really have the money, but I want to go. You know, for for something small like that, I, I I'm really willing to to use this app. And use mobile bank, uh, mobile banking, and open banking, and real-time payments to make all that happen. Um, so I, I think, you know, but from a business perspective, I th- and I think SMEs are are really are an underserved group. I think something like open banking is really great. They have access to to far more um, financial institutions that might be willing to give them loans. It's convenient because all that transaction history can be sent over via API, you know, in a matter of seconds. And, and like you said, it's a win-win situation. A bank is, is now making loan offers to clients that potential clients that didn't have access to. My bank is, is making money off of, um, you know, that, that service charge to, to the other banks. And then me, the consumer or the business is now getting money and convenience in a way that wasn't possible before. So it's a win-win-win, like you said. Well, and you know something else too, because of course security is an issue and it should be a concern. And there are standards and sound business practices that are followed. But the reality, I think, for a lot of people is they need to understand the, the, the norm is that everything is done right. And the norm is that your data is safe and it's protected. What happens is when there is the exception, and the exceptions are few and far between, like I talk about exception processing a lot with people, and nobody realizes the hundreds of thousands of transactions that go through without a problem, but everybody hears about the one that had a problem. Everybody hears about the one that was an issue, that is the exception to the rule, and that's why we call it exception processing. So I I agree, I think there's tons of use cases. Now, I'd ask, too, because that's where we're seeing it now today in possibilities. Where do you really believe, though, open banking and faster payments is going to be, especially here in the U.S., say in about four or five years down the road? Like, if you pulled out your crystal ball of payments, where do you think it's going to take us? So I think, you know, just given the size and complexity of the U.S. market, um, and looking at what's happened in Europe in terms of, of, of time, because I think in terms of scale, it's, it's similar. Um, it's going to be at least three years before we really see the type of platformification and ubiquity that we hope to see in Europe soon. Um, I do imagine that within five years, uh, we, we won't be debating whether or not, you know, faster payments is, is a topic worth having, right? We're going we're gonna to realize that, that faster payments are like email. No one's going to be using snail mail anymore, at least not for the majority of things. People are going to send real-time payments. They're going to be, for consumers, they're going to be either free or they're going to be subsumed within the ordinary uh, current account fees, I think. Um, and I think businesses are going to start moving over payments to that to 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 that faster rail as well. And I think for me, the big the, the really interesting use case is um, say uh, employee disbursements. So think about you know your Uber or Lyft drivers, or the freelance graphic designer that's helping you with your company website, 
or, you know, maybe those, those temporary workers that you have, you know, say during, um, you know, the holiday season that are helping out, you know, so, and, and given, given trends in the U S that more and more people are working multiple jobs and, you know, having various part-time jobs rather than your, your standard nine to five type thing. I think that, that, Real-time payments are just going to open up that flexibility for people to get paid when they when they want. Um, that's that's the first thing. I think open banking is a little bit more complicated because in order to really make it work, you have to have one standard that the entire market uses. And given just the sheer size of the U.S. market and how how diverse it is, you know, whether it's your small little savings bank or it's you know your your J.P. Morgan Chases, it's going to be it's going to be really difficult, I think, for the U.S. to come together along as um, a standardized API to allow for open banking to reach its full potential. That said, it's, it's going to happen. Um, I would be shocked if it was going to happen in three years. Mm -hmm. um, I think even five years for a, for a country like the U.S. is also really ambitious. Um, but I think it's going to happen. The question is when. And the reason why I say that is... You know, if, if, you know, when back in 2002, for example, no one would have said that they needed a, a personal uh, cell phone that would act like their personal assistant and, you know, not just make phone calls or send text messages, but could also serve as a map function, could, would allow you to order food and would allow you to schedule meetings via email on the go. You know, no one would have said that, but the iPhone came out. And slowly, it, it took a couple of years before basically everyone had one, but now everyone has a smartphone and no one would ever consider, you know, not buying a smartphone. Um, and I think it's going to be the same way with open banking, that slowly banks will start implementing open banking concepts and that consumers will, you know, then be able to use third-party uh, providers for, for things like, you know, uh, personal finance and you know make, getting these short-term loans and just little products and services like that and it's gonna you know it's gonna have a snowball effect like i said it, it's gonna take a few years because of the issue of standardization but it's going to happen um and pretty soon within a few years after that happens people will think wow so when i wanted to get a bank loan you know 10 years ago i had to like go into a branch and fill out all these paperwork to prove my identity. I couldn't just, you know, say, "Hey, look, here's mm -hmm. my here's my uh, other bank's, you know, KYC stuff on on me." I couldn't just send that over, right? I mean, it's it's like having. A, in fact, yesterday I went to the DMV to renew my license, and I just showed up with my passport, and that's enough to prove who I am, you know. So, in a sense, the the, the American government already did KYC on me. They issued me a passport, and then now I use that passport to prove my identity to another government organization because the two don't necessarily talk to each other. You know, in, in a few years, open banking platforms will allow that seamless uh, uh, transition or, or giving of data between multiple different entities. And, and that is fantastic. Great answer. I agree with you. It's going to happen in time. And I think it's something that for those who will take advantage of it and use it, especially the early adopters, they're going to see major advantages. Well, Andrew, I, I do want to thank you for being on the show. I greatly appreciate you being here. 
Folks, uh, for those of you out there listening, look forward to hearing you or hearing from you as far as topics you'd like to have in future shows. Until then, everybody have a fantastic day. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.